This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hey, is this thing on? Welcome to Maddox on the Mic, a legal podcast presented by Maddox, an independent Australian law firm. Hello and welcome to the Maddox Privacy as a Priority podcast, where we'll be talking about all things privacy to celebrate Privacy Awareness Week. This year's theme is Make Privacy a Priority, and we'll be discussing leading cases, changing regulatory expectations, and the real challenges in this evolving space. My hope is that you'll be inspired to action just one new thing, to make privacy a priority in your workplace or even in your personal life. My name is Sonia Sharma. I'm a partner in the Maddox TMT team in Sydney, and you may have seen my articles on privacy. It's a big part of what I do here. I love it. I'm also the Sydney Education Sector Champion, and I have learnt everything I know about the sector from my guest and mentor in the space, Rob Gregory. That's right. Joining me today is Rob Gregory, who is a partner in our commercial team in Melbourne. Rob is also the firm's education sector leader. Rob advises Australian and international government, universities and education providers and has specialist skills when it comes to advising on privacy issues in this space. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks very much, Sonia. I'm really pleased to be here. It's great to have you. Um, we'll kick off talking about the, the, the Commonwealth regime and um, the OAIC actually did release some guidance to say, look, we understand that you had to pivot really quickly um, last year and roll out you know online technologies um, and facilitate the facilitate learning in a COVID environment but what the Commonwealth has said is that well we acknowledge that you had to pivot quickly but what we expect you to do is to take a breath now and sort of go back and look at the privacy impacts of new things that you would have implemented at that time is that something you're seeing the education sector do? Are people now taking that breath and going back to the, those things they rapidly implemented to consider the privacy concerns? Look, I think you'd say to an extent. Um, probably there are still many issues for um, institutions, schools, universities or schools or, or private businesses that might higher on the agenda, you know, the, um, the, the, the difficulties around international students particularly. Um, but going back now and sort of reassessing what new tools and new ways of handling personal information those tools have resulted in, um, doing privacy impact assessments um, and also sort of picking up on the OAIC's um, approach of where it's appropriate to, to, you know, to actually publish those PIAs um, will go a long way Um, this year and, and as we move out of COVID, hopefully, and into sort of a more uh, normal environment through, you know, the balance of 2021 and into 2022 and 23. Because ultimately, um, while protection of personal privacy might be seen to be a a lower order issue during a a global health emergency, um, protection of personal information and and people's privacy is is really important to their sense of integrity and their trust in a in a provider of any service, but particularly a service like education. 
that um, organisations are, are living up to and putting measures in place to earn that trust and justify that trust, I think, is very important. Yeah, trust is trust really is critical, isn't it? Um, I remember during that time helping a client who, you know, really rapidly had to move to online exams um, and they were using ProctorU, which is a uh, very well-known, I, I guess, um, authentication and cheating reviewing service that make sure that students aren't cheating. But it was interesting looking at their T's and C's and and, and their privacy collection notices, and they didn't really make clear, uh, I pointed out to the client, that, the, that they were actually recording the student um, and while they were doing the exam. And I, and I think we managed to get some more clarity around that in the sort of collection notices or at least letting students know that, hey, this is actually, this is how this service works. Um, when you're sitting in the exam, you're actually being, this is how the recording works. So I think that trust point is is actually really, is really critical when you're, you're dealing with your students and um, other stakeholders. Um, but I did want to touch on ProctorU. Uh, they suffered a data breach um, and one interesting thing about that data breach was that the data that was impacted was very historical in nature. It was for it was um, for some time ago, I think back in March two thousand and fifteen. Um, now you and I both do a lot of data breach response work, and I wanted to quickly chat about the risk of historical records um, and what the challenges are for the education sector because you, the education sector really does hold so many records and and that really is a risk when it comes to data breaches well that's absolutely right um so many education institutions hold uh records going back you know decades uh potentially even centuries in some cases but for people who are still living you know often um proving that qualifications have been attained um really requires on going back to the institution's records so the or, or conversely, if people haven't achieved the qualifications that they're, they're claiming that ability as well. Um, so being able to sort of make sure that that information is being um, stored in a way that makes it, you know, that does provide those reasonable protections around misuse, uh, inappropriate access, changes, et cetera, is important. Um, also having mechanisms where, for whatever reason, the records have become inaccurate or were originally inaccurate to have those altered as need be to make them accurate um, are actually quite important obligations in the privacy regime. And we see that for some systems and some organisations who use those systems, that's a very difficult thing to do. Many organisations, including universities and schools, are moving to more of an outsourced and cloud-based X-as-a-service style approach to their educational platforms which by and large is, is worth doing because there are, there are lots of advantages in terms of scalability, but also in terms of cybersecurity. But it does highlight the need, I think, to be really clear and have a good understanding of what steps the outsourced service provider is taking to protect that information. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I sort of say to client, yes, the contract, of course, that's important, but you have to do your technical due diligence and you have to undertake that, you know, that privacy and impact assessment because the contract of course, it's important, but it's sort of not worth the paper it's written on if you haven't gone to actually look at how your service provider, um, what they're actually doing in terms of handling that personal information. So it, it's a very important part of the, the sort of risk and governance process, I think. 
Um, well, that, that, well that, that's right. I mean, a well-drafted outsourcing or services agreement provides a really useful, hopefully, uh, hopefully really useful toolkit of tools that can be used to manage the relationship with the provider. But um, those tools, you know, it's a bit like having a, a well-equipped mechanics shop unless someone who knows what they're doing is picking up the tools and actually using them in the right way having all the tools in the toolbox isn't all that useful yeah absolutely absolutely i mean we might stay on the topic of data breaches because i think we can learn so much from them and i think the education sector has a lot to learn from the anu data breach um now the anu data breach is probably one of the most significant data breaches that's occurred in the last you know, a few years in Australia. Can you just sort of recap what happened there for anyone who, who might not just be across the detail or, or just across the basics of what actually went, what actually happened there? Yeah, so look, um, this is all based on the, the publicly available information and it's a, it's a very quick uh, summary of a really complex uh, incident, I suppose. But, but ANU had an enterprise systems domain which housed all of the university's human resources, financial management, student admin, um, but also all the enterprise e-forms. And they were breached by a very complex spear phishing email scam. Um, yeah. On the publicly available information, ANU weren't able to determine exactly how much was data was taken and, and exactly what data was taken. Yeah. And this is due to the particular way the data was removed from ESD and then because of the um, threat actors clean-up operations, which um, appear to have left very little evidence of their activities or methodologies. Yeah. Well, that ANU's investigations have shown that the amount of data is far less than the university university's first risk assessment, um, which they publicly announced back in the, on the 4th of June 2019. So quite rightly, the university did an initial risk assessment when they first became aware. Um, and I suppose, pleasingly, the initial risk assessment um, was broad enough in scope that it actually captured more potentially than actually had been taken. Um, so the actor had access to data up to about 19 years old, but it, it sounds like um, on all the information now that they took far less than 19 years worth of data that they um, that they could have had access to. Yeah. Now, for um, this this particular incident, as well as sort of being um, relevant in a discussion of privacy, is also one of the um, uh, regulatory justifications the government has cited in also now looking at expanding its security security of critical infrastructure regime to cover um, educational institutions. So there, these are amendments to make certain education institutions and, and systems and parts of education institutions um, subject to the security of critical infrastructure regime looks quite expressly at not only in Australia, but some of the uh, penetrations of other universities around the world. Um, that, that those proposed amendments are still being considered by the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Mm. But based on other amendments that have been relevant to the sector over the, um, the last six months or so, particularly the Australia's Foreign Relations Acts and how they apply to the education sector, particularly the universities sector, it would seem more likely than not that the, those uh, critical infrastructure amendments will, will probably be passed. It's, and and that, that's really interesting. And I, and I just want to take a step back to the release of the um, the forensic expert report because I remember when that, that actually came out 
And uh, I wrote to you immediately and said, Rob, this is, this is, you know, this is new. This is a, this is a sort of a first in Australia, the forensic reports being released. What's going on here? Um, and I think it's sort of linked to the things you've, you've just spoken about then. Um, why do you think the forensic report was actually released publicly? Well, I think really um, it comes back in some ways, if you like, to the, the core role of what an education institution is. It's to, it's to create and develop new knowledge, but then to share and disseminate that, that knowledge across society. And obviously both of those things happen in, in a wide range of ways through the university's research activities, but also its learning and teaching activities. But in, but in some ways sharing a, um, a report like that um, forensic report is is really helpful in educating not just the university sector but society more broadly about what's going on. Yeah. Um, it's not. I think it's important to say most people would um, have the view that it was a a foreign state actor who was involved in the ANU hack. That that seems to be a relatively consensus position. I, I suppose you'd say. Um, and I'm not aware of the particular evidence that that consensus position is based on. But certainly the University Foreign Interference Task Force guidelines um, also specifically look at um, the way you communicate learnings and share that sort of information amongst the sector, but also within universities as a really critical governance function of making sure that um, where it comes to sort of foreign influence or foreign interference, that those those risks and the ways of dealing with those risks are being shared to to bring everyone hopefully up towards uh, best practice. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right, and I think maybe that view is is known within the sector itself, but perhaps not. Say, students might not understand that, or parents um, and just the general community the community understanding that you know that might have been the reason for the breach. I, I do agree with you that. The, the sort of public release of the, the forensic report is really essential reading for not only the education sector but anyone to be able to upskill themselves on, you know, what a sophisticated data breach looks like and how your organisation might need to respond. And I think what ANU did really well was they were really open and transparent. They set up, you know, updated frequently asked questions. They had a microsite on um, on their main website, which was dedicated to the breach. I really feel like they set a new standard in Australia for post-breach care. And the, the, the legislation itself doesn't say you have to do all of these things. It doesn't say that you need to set up a hotline or you need to do these things, but the guidance makes it very clear and, and I do think organisations need to think and scenario test and run hypotheticals. If we got hit with this kind of breach, would we be, would we be able to implement an ANU-style response? Do you agree with that sort of sentiment that there's a, the ANU breach sort of sets a, a bit of standard there when it comes to post-breach care? I, I think it does. I mean, it's probably important to recognise that universities, particularly under the higher education standards, do have obligations around student welfare. Um, mm. And I suppose that sort of leads to another interesting um, observation amongst the number of non-privacy regulators who are getting into the privacy regulation space. But yeah. um, certainly, certainly TEXA, who's the, the regulator for higher education in Australia, would take the view that uh, any any university who has had an incident um, that could affect 
student welfare has student welfare obligations. You could query whether that applies to, to alumni, um, but but I, I would certainly agree with you, Sonia. I mean, I think it really sets a great standard for what is best practice in a in a response. And coming back to something else you said that is very important when um, it really comes to any sort of data breach uh, response planning is the need to do scenario testing and, and hopefully yeah. test not only the most likely and most common scenarios and how they would be responded to, but sort of identify well, what is a what is a worst case scenario really look like, and and how would we respond to one of those worst case scenarios and. The benefit of doing that is that you're not trying to make up all these things on the fly. You've actually yeah. got a, a plan that would probably need some adjustment for the particular circumstances you're dealing with, but then um, but you're working to a, a predetermined and a pre-rehearsed and a pre-practiced plan. 100%. Rather, rather than that. Rather than trying to sort of build, yeah. build, build the airplane as you're flying. Absolutely. And it's like I do a lot of work with um, forensic experts and one of my favourite forensic experts that I work with used to work in the military and he describes it to say, you know, data breach, it is like a crisis moment for an organisation and based on his military experience, you don't go into war without a, you know, with no plan. You you rehearse things, you scenario, te- you scenario test likely scenarios and you go in with a bit of a plan. So if anyone out there would like to do some hypothetical training or scenario testing, I'm sure Rob and I can put together a, uh, a very rigorous uh, test case for you. We'd love to work through that, that through with your organisations. It's, um, it's, it's really a worthwhile exercise and can't express how important it is to do that. Um, well, so, um, to, to pick up on what your colleague said or your, your uh, consultant said, Sonia, um, one of my favourite quotes is from Dwight Eisenhower, who, uh, for the younger members of the audience, perhaps was the American general who was the supreme commander of Allied forces during uh, World War II and particularly in the European theatre. And he, inv- he, under his control, all of D-Day and the subsequent activities were, were planned and executed. He then went on to be a two-term president of the United States, so a, a real underachiever there. But what, <laughs> um, but what Eisenhower famously said is that in war, plans are useless, but planning is essential. Yeah. And the point he was really making is that it's the process of doing really detailed planning and preparing detailed plans that may need to change radically as soon as you're, you're doing it for real. But yeah. it's that process of planning that enables you to be flexible and, and pivot. That's it. That's absolutely it's such, a, it's such a good way to look at it. Um, well, moving on, the education sector is so interesting. There's so many trends happening. I, I know like the, the theme of lifelong learning is, is one, um, but the other big trend that we're sort of seeing in the education sphere is this idea of the student experience and that you know, students should have a very tailored um, and individual experience. And, of course, with that personalisation, there is a greater collection of personal information when you're, um, you know, connecting with online communities or using apps and things like that to be able to book appointments with your teachers. The more personalised an experience gets, the more personal information you're, you're collecting. Is, is that a trend that you're seeing in the space, this idea of a you know highly personalised student experience? And what are some of the challenges that you're sort of seeing with that personalised student experience? 
has more formal, full uh, qualifications within the Australian qualifications framework, like a, a bachelor's degree or master's degrees or even diplomas or graduate diplomas. We're seeing a lot of micro-credentialing, and, and, um, which are much more discreet and targeted courses to a particular skill or a particular area of knowledge or expertise. Um, coupled with that is a real explosion in education technology. And, and here in Australia, we have a really vibrant and, and bustling um, education technology sector looking to new ways to, to provide both education and attainment to students. That necessarily means is both a lot more sharing of personal information between providers. So it won't necessarily just be a single institution or school or university who provides um, education or training to a student, but it could be a, a range of providers and they may well use different uh, services in order to enable them to do that. So both in accordance with the law, but also mm. in a way that really enhances institutions' reputations rather than become threatening to them. In terms of crystal balling to the future, uh, if you had to look ahead on the year and just pick one or two things that you think are going to impact the education sector the most, what would you pick when it comes to privacy? Yeah, so I think um, that those two things, the increased need for online and how we manage online, um, both future-looking but also all of the online that was moved to very quickly and agilely last year, um, but how do we make sure that that information is being appropriately protected and where it is necessary to have consent to collect or use or disclose that information that those consents are in place and properly recorded. So I think there is a, a degree of um, housekeeping from 2020 that still needs to be done. Looking forward, I think the trend to micro-credentialing and online won't slow or stop. Um, if anything, it's going to increase. Yeah. So making sure that as organisations are working on implementing those those strategies and those plans, the privacy is, is really front and centre as part of that due diligence inquiry that they're undertaking and that privacy impact assessments are, are being undertaken and that they are realistic um, and that wherever possible, you know, there's a real uh, bias towards making those public, those privacy impact, impact assessments public, at least within that community of the the institution. Um, Rob, just to finish off with, I really think personal stories can be powerful. Um, and I was wondering if you had a personal story that you might be able to share for our listeners so that it, that they can make privacy a priority this year. Two things occur to me. The first is in your own personal life is remembering the old saying, I guess in internet terms, it's an old saying that if you are not paying for the product, you are the product. Yep. I.e., people are collecting your personal information for a reason. Um, yep. Now, sometimes that's a very fair exchange. The the product you get for free um, is is worth that delivery of your personal information to you. But don't let it happen by accident. Be conscious of it and make a conscious choice. The um, second one is, and more for organisations, I suppose, is that. One of the big trends we're seeing at the moment is towards multi-factor or, or two-factor two authentication. Mm. That is most definitely a technology that's better than nothing, but it's not a panacea. Um, many people I deal with sort of seem to believe that if we're doing multi-factor authentication, we've got security nailed and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a technology 
uh, and cybersecurity professional and my my domestic partner is, has a senior roles in the telecommunications industry, but we've managed to have a, a port forwarding fraud against us. Um, fortunately, our bank was excellent and, and refunded the money straight away, but two-factor authentication creates its own problems and isn't necessarily the panacea for everything. Wow, that's something to really think about there, Rob. I, I hadn't really... Um... I confess that I uh, am a big MFA fan and, and I hadn't really thought about that. So that is something for all of us to sort of stew on, I think. I mean, it's such a fast-moving space, so it's really hard to keep up, but that's really valuable. Rob, I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much. Um, it's been a great discussion. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, learned something new and got inspired to make privacy a priority. If you've got any questions, head over to the Maddox website where you can get in touch with either myself and Rob. Thanks very much for listening and don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Maddox on the Mic. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to maddox.com.au forward slash podcast to subscribe. If you'd like more information on any of the topics discussed in today's episode, visit the Maddox website, maddox.com.au.